We're very glad everybody's here because I know everybody could be at Nationals Park right now, lined up at the concession stand, waiting to watch the Nats play the Braves, which we should go there after this. We should all go. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be asked uh, about a year and a half ago to curate this exhibition, and the purpose of this exhibition is to pay tribute to Elvis on, on this, the occasion of his 75th birthday, well actually this past January the 8th, 2010, and, and I understand we have one of our guests from Minnesota who shares the same birthday, happy birthday also. What you see in the room, what we tried to build was a tribute, uh, kind of an encomium, a salute, and we have a lot of artists represented, a couple from Tennessee, Red Grooms, who executed the large color print over there, and William Eggleston, whose photography surrounds this image of Elvis, the portrait bust by Robert Arneson. But today we're gonna, going to talk about an image by Georgia artist Howard Finster. Finster was an untrained or, or a naive or an outsider artist, outsider artist. He was originally called, he believed, he, Finster believed he was called to do the work of the Lord. And so in Finster's work, we see a lot of religious imagery, a lot of allegory. And he's a real interesting person to talk about if for no other reason than the stories his children tell about him. Finster's kids say if we wanted something built in the backyard like a, uh, a castle, he, he would build it. And our backyard was at any given time covered with these images like we see, first of all, the child Elvis over here, and then secondly, the image of Elvis as an adult in the army. And again, Finster was not trained as an artist in any school of fine arts. He was self-taught. He eventually believed that he was given the mission to do his spiritual work through art. And so we see these images on plywood that he cut out with a router saw or some sort of table saw. And they're very, they're very sturdy images, obviously. And he would hang them up to dry in his backyard. I've heard a couple of different stories about how he would, he would sell his artwork. Well, not even sell it on occasion. He would, uh, he would, he would have you looking at his artwork at his home and he might not be in the mood to sell it, but he would say, well, just open up the trunk of your car. You can take these with you. And as, um, as an outsider artist, I'm not really sure that he had an appreciation of, of the attraction that folk art has for a lot of people. After Elvis' death in 1977, Finster started portraying images of Elvis because he believed Elvis was also an emissary of God. And we see in this one a take on the portrait of Elvis as a child. There's a photograph of Elvis wearing overalls, and we see a variation on that image. In this case, Elvis has these wings, and there's something of an allegory at work here because inside the wings there's actually this galactic experience. We've got angels at work here and these cosmic images afloat. This image is a little more unusual. It's not the Elvis as a soldier image that we see in photographs over and over and over again. This image is some sort of 
idealized image of Elvis in his two years, right at the beginning of, uh, of a spectacular career when he was drafted and taken and put to work for Uncle Sam. And that's what we're here to talk about. How did it happen? How did Elvis end up in the Army after a couple of fistfuls of hits on the charts, a couple of high-dollar movies under his belt? How did he just stop his career and end up in the Army? Well, (coughs) pardon me, I don't know that he really wanted to go. (laughs) I think... I think if any of us were put in his shoes, and I'm not saying that there's not a great call to patriotism at work on Elvis's part and that, that he just didn't you know, want to go, but if you're in Hollywood and you're, you're making films and if you're cutting records and if you've got all the money in the world and you're 23 years old and you've got the attention of legions, well, not even legions. I've gone down in writing before saying Elvis didn't have legions of fans. Elvis had millions of fans, and a lot of them were girls. It just happens to be. uh, (laughs) It's kind of hard to imagine wanting to give all that up and go and and do the the drudgery work of of the Army for a couple of years. There's a lot of good stories about how this all fell into place, one take on it, and again, I'm not, playing, I'm not putting into question Elvis's patriotism, but one of the more interesting things I've read is how perfect it was, and this, there's several accounts of this, how perfect it was that Elvis actually did decide to do his duty by going into the Army. He was sent his first draft notice in January of 1957, but he didn't actually go into the Army until March of 1958. And he had actually requested a series of deferments. I believe there was a total of three deferments that he requested before he ever put on a set of fatigues or did his first push-up or you know, ate his first army meal. The first couple were for personal reasons and to try to get his affairs in order, the first couple of deferments. And then the last was on behalf of the studio he was working for as he was filming King Creole and that pushed him into 1958. And the third deferment was the last one. At some point, Elvis had a conversation, probably many conversations with his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who oddly was neither a colonel nor Tom Parker. His real name was Andreas Van Kirk. He was born in the Netherlands. And the title colonel was an honorific, which was bestowed upon him by the governor of a southern state. I can't remember if it was Kentucky or Louisiana, but it was not real. So, oh, it was an interesting thing that he was none of the things that he claimed to be with respect to nomenclature. But what he was, was, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of a lot of people, someone who could easily serve as the seat of excellence of a marketing department at any, at any major university in the world. Colonel Tom knew how to sell. Previously, he'd been Hank Snow's manager. When he saw Elvis, he thought, this is a train I want to be on. And he knew, how to, he knew how to engineer that train as well. 
when the first draft notice came down in 1957, again, some conversation occurred somewhere between Elvis and Colonel Tom. And in that conversation, they probably discussed Elvis getting out of the army and the possibilities. And it was a possibility, or Elvis could have opted for some light duty because he was, in 1957, a huge star. And the army could have made it such that he did recruitment drives. The army could have made it such that he had basically country club kind of assignments. But Colonel Tom steered him away from that and ultimately it paid off. In 1955, 1956, 1957, as Elvis's career was really jumping into place, he was seen as something of a rebel, an image that he capitalized on and an image that he portrayed over and over again in the movies. It's something of an archetype and, and it had a dollar figure attached to it if you were able to play it successfully. A lot of dads certainly didn't want their daughters dating this guy. Well, by joining the army, by, by allowing himself to be inducted or by becoming part of the system, what happened was the, the viewpoint shifted on Elvis. Everybody's perspective changed. Well, yeah, he's a rebel, but he's also a good boy. He's doing his duty for Uncle Sam. Elvis went through basic training. He started out at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas, just, just, getting the, just getting his orders underway. Then he went to Fort Hood for basic training. And then he was sent to Germany. And he did his duty. By the time he finished his work in the Army, he came back to the United States. And he was accepted in a much more mainstream way. Dads were less reluctant to let their daughters listen to his records. His movie roles all of a sudden became one and the same. A typical Elvis role is a guy stumbles into town. He's a rebel and an outcast. He does something great. He wins the girl after some sort of keen competition. It's an archetypal kind of story that Joseph Campbell could have pieced together very easily. And sure enough, in almost all the Elvis movies, the good guy wins. Well, that's what people pay for in Hollywood, and that's what Elvis was good at making. There wasn't a lot of literary merit, I guess is the best way to couch those terms, in any of those scripts. If you look at the scripts that came down the pike, even in the beginning, there was a, there was a lot of bubblegum involved in filming an Elvis movie. But that was what the audience wanted and how Wallace at one time said, if you want to make money in Hollywood, put Elvis in a movie. Sadly, Elvis's Hollywood experience didn't do for him what it did for others. Elvis, the money that he made in Hollywood actually served to, to fund other efforts, more serious movies Elvis would have loved to have participated in. That's the movies, that's later, that's another talk. Back to the army. So Elvis went through basic training. One of the claims attached to Elvis's time in the Army was, yes, he was a regular soldier. Yes, he did his job as a good American boy. However, from the moment he was inducted until the day he left the Army in March of 1960, it was anything but a typical Army experience. He was drafted with a bunch of boys who were a lot like him, and he went through basic training with a bunch of regular guys. And they all did their fair share of, I think, I think the Army routine called them 12s and 12s, 12 sets of exercises repeated 12 times over the course of a day. 
and Elvis ate the army meals, and for a while he bunked in army bunks, but not all the time. One of the privileges that the army extended to him, which was extended to, to many soldiers after basic training, was if you had the money, you could live off base. Well, of course, not every soldier lived off, could afford to live off base. Elvis, on the other hand, wherever he went, was able to rent housing and live off base. By the time they arrived in Germany in 1958, Elvis had his family in tow with him, and he was able to eat home-cooked meals. His grandmother was along with him. His father was there. And so he enjoyed the privileges of someone of his bank account. On the other hand, he did have duties that he had to, that he, with which he had to comply. He had to be able to disassemble his gun. He had to be able to, to take care of his uniform, he had, which I'm sure he had someone else taking care of his uniform, but he had to complete the field exercises. He had to sign out a Jeep, and he had to sign out the 50 caliber machine gun that went with the Jeep. So he was responsible for that. But he was also responsible for a lot of partying from Bad Neuheim to Paris. And everywhere that Mary, that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Everywhere that Elvis went, the girls were sure to go. Man, there were chicks everywhere looking for Elvis. From Germany to Paris, at one time, one of the best stories I think I've read about this, um, there's a club in Paris, or there was, I don't know if it still exists, the Club Lido. And, of course, Elvis had his flunkies with him during all the, not his flunkies, I shouldn't say that, the Memphis Mafia, you know, his couturier, right, the phalanx of men that were attached to him. These were buddies, but they were also on his payroll, and they served as bodyguards, chauffeurs, and cronies. Well, in Paris, uh, Elvis had several of, his, several of his friends with him, and they were just spending the weekend partying, and they went to the Club Lido, and they met all these girls. Well, early in the morning, the hotel rang, and the manager from the Club Lido said, we're prepared to open for the day. One of Elvis's friends answered the phone. We're prepared to open for the day. So uh, one of his friends, a guy named Lamar Fike, who had answered the phone, said, so open your club. And he hung the phone up, and the manager called back again. And these guys were all sleepy. They'd been out partying all night, and, uh, and Lamar Fike answered the phone again in Elvis's room, and the manager said, we are prepared to open the club. And the guy said, so open your club. And the manager of this Parisian nightclub said, all our girls are with you. <laughs> and so so the, the, entire, the entire dance team, the whole squad of girls, the whole... They're all their employees had followed Elvis out of the club and gone, gone back and partied all night with him. So that was kind of typical of the experiences that, uh, that Elvis had. A couple of things, interestingly, that left the army with Elvis. One, sadly, a couple more interesting things. In the army, Elvis accelerated his use of amphetamines. I believe dexedrine was his pill of choice at that time. The purpose for that, along with, um, and not just Elvis, this is, uh, you know, it's the trucker's drug, right? You, uh, you take this to stay awake, and, and I'm just generalizing here. I'm not, you know, trying to cast aspersions on, on, any, on anyone in particular, but at that time, that became his, his drug of choice because you would take, take the amphetamines, 
and then you'd be able to stay up and they would energize you and when you started to when your energy started to dip you'd take a few more it also kept you inside your weight and you're able to stay up and party all weekend or more importantly if you were attached to the military you're able to pull your guard duty all night long that was one thing that Elvis dragged back into civil, civilian life that, that stayed with him. A couple of other things that, that happened while he was in the Army that were, um, were to be with him the rest of his life. One, he met a girl there. She was 14 years old, Priscilla Beaulieu. Her father was stationed near... His, her father was stationed... It wasn't in Bad Neuheim. I think it was in Wiesbaden. And he met her through, uh, through a friend and immediately fell in love with her. She was 14 and she was a very pretty girl. She was much more sophisticated looking than your average 14 year old. And there's a couple of interesting things, a couple of interesting things about Priscilla. I'm not trying to Again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions here, but there's this one line in this book, which is Sergeant Presley by Rex and Elizabeth Mansfield. Elizabeth Mansfield was one of Elvis's old girlfriends from this period. Rex Mansfield was one of Elvis's army buddies. Elvis told Rex after meeting Priscilla, she's young enough that I can train her any way I want, which I found to be a, a particularly interesting line. This book is one of the, if you see in the case over there when we were assembling the exhibition, we put together a few items that have come out. Everything in here is a product of Elvis's life after, 19, after his death, August 16, 1977. Well, there's tons of biographies out there, and a lot of them are just garbage. There's just some bad, bad stuff out there. This one is kind of in the middle of the road. Some of the writing in here is kind of, and it's guilty of the same thing the critics uh, uh, had to say about Priscilla Presley's book, which the margins are wide and there's a lot of space between the lines. But this fellow, Rex Mansfield, Elvis's old army buddy, actually committed himself to doing some research. And so if you want to read about Elvis's army years, this book has some pretty good stories. There, there's, some, there's some really good recollections. October 1st, 1958, we arrived in Bremerhaven, Germany. We were loaded onto a German troop train. Bremerhaven was, at the time, Germany's biggest North Sea coastal town. He recalls his experience as one of Elvis's buddies in the Army. Pretty clearly, there's, um, there's a couple of letters in here, and he also talks specifically about the regimens of their training. Our weapon proficiency, we, weapon proficiency test started with the Army 45 automatic and went up to the 90 millimeter gun. In between were the grease gun, the carbine, the M1 rifle, the 30 caliber machine gun, and the 50 caliber machine gun. They had to have proficiencies in, in all of these. We carried the Army 45 on our hips and the 90 millimeter was carried by our M48 tank along with the other weapons in Grafenauer, we fired only live ammunition. So you know, there's, some, there's some really good recollections inside here. And again, outside of the day-to-day the -day army experience, the push-ups, the eating in the kitchen, and the weapons training, there's stories of a lot of parties and a lot of women. 
and Elvis couldn't turn around, it seems, without having someone be bestowing a kiss upon him. These girls were uh, these girls were all over all over him at every train stop, every bus stop, every car stop outside the base, outside his apartment, outside his his civilian housing. One of the other things that Elvis took away from him that was to stay with him the rest of his life from the from the army was karate. And it's one of these things that later on became part of the discourse uh, of things about Elvis you make fun of. And everybody, kids, uh, kids around about Elvis's appetite, Elvis loved to eat, Every, Elvis had all these girls, Elvis grew big in his old age, Elvis and drugs, all this sort of thing. Elvis and karate became you know, something of, of a joke in any of the any of the, um, the people who are, who are poking fun at Elvis, sometimes they'll, they'll drop into the karate pose. What's interesting is he picked that up at this time. He became fascinated with the martial arts. Fast moves intrigued Elvis when, when he wasn't behind the wheel of a car. He was, also loved automobiles, right? Around this time, he began taking an interest in the martial art, and I love the deliberation of this this gentleman's writing, or the as-told-to deliberation. It's actually a pretty interesting book. Around this time, he began taking an interest in the martial art called karate. In early December 1958, Elvis and I attended a karate demonstration given by Jürgen Seidel, known as the father of German karate. We were both very impressed as we watched Seidel demonstrate his fighting maneuvers, which is, uh, again, something that not only became... Uh, pastime for Elvis, but it, at times it was uh, it, it, it was an obsession, just like anything that he would get into. If if it was uh, if it was automobiles, he would he would he would wholly involve himself. It, it, weapons. Elvis loved weapons. Karate, and he and he studied karate until he achieved a black belt. One one. Item I read said that he had a fifth degree black belt. I don't know how serious the training regimen was, but if you see some of the Vegas concert footage from later on, you see Elvis incorporating karate into his, into his concert appearances. And he'd stop in the middle of a song and he'd start, and, and start executing these karate moves. And he was double jointed, so he looked pretty vicious when he, when he, when he put his hand out like this. Another thing that Elvis carried out from the army. Something else that he took with him, of course, was his love of weapons, which there's a lot of stories about that. Anytime you ever became, in later years, a good buddy of Elvis, likely as not, you were to receive one of three things for a gift. Either an automobile, a piece of jewelry, or a Colt 45 automatic that was showcased somehow in a special way. There's stories about Elvis giving Colt 45s to... All his pals, Jack Lord. Anybody in here old enough to remember Hawaii Five O? Yeah, Steve McGarrett. Book him, Dano, Murder One, and uh, and of course, probably the most famous incident of Elvis giving a gift to a gift of a pistol to someone would be. Anybody want to finish this sentence? Amen. <laughs> yes, ma'am. President Nixon would be the probably most famous beneficiary of uh, of one of Elvis's. Uh, weapons gifts. So anyway, with that, I just wanted to conclude by saying a lot of, uh, a lot of people consider that period in Elvis's life to be the, the missing years 
but they're actually pretty well documented and as much as, and I'm, I'm probably at fault with respect to this as much as any of the critics I, I, I've ever read, a lot of the memoirs are, are not evenly written and they're, they're actually in many cases poorly amalgamated as told to type stories. This one by Rex and Elizabeth Mansfield, I think Ned gets a pretty good thumbs up because I can tell he, he consciously went about, or very conscientiously went about gathering his information and remembering things well, talking with, with multiple sources. And for, for that, I, I give, the, give the book a pat on the back. Also, it does go a long way, this book especially, towards filling in those, those moments that Elvis was not in the public eye. The parting thought, those two years from March to March, 58 to 1960, when Elvis was not in the public eye, did he stop making money? Did his career shut down like he was afraid it would? No, because of the most important colonel in Elvis's life was not the one in the United States military, it was Colonel Tom Parker. And what Colonel Tom had done beginning in 1957 was to gunny sack Elvis material so that while Elvis was gone, not just publicity about Elvis doing his job as a good boy being in the army and all would come out, not just the, the final release of, of King Creole, but Elvis singles would hit the market from time to time. And of course, everybody was starved for Elvis music, and so these songs would pop right up to the top of the charts. So even though Elvis was technically not in the eye of the public, from 1958 to 1960, he was at least in their ears because of Colonel Tom's very brilliant strategy of gunny sacking these singles and sending them out intermittently as Elvis finished his duties for the United States Armed Services. Are there any questions? I have these books that I've been carrying in case I don't have, have it up here. No, ma'am, I did not. I saw him pull out of his driveway on my way to Sunday school one time. That was the closest I ever saw. I've seen a lot of people in concert, but there is no one on earth that I would want to see There are a lot of guys who were jealous of Elvis. Right on I-40. <laughs> sure, sure. And I've never heard I've never heard a bad story about an Elvis concert. There are some strange stories, you know, about the later years when he would he would do strange stuff on stage in Vegas. But but everything that I've ever seen on film and every account I've ever heard from people who were there said, yeah, it was. There's a reason that he was Elvis, and 